0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Don't Lose Heart. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday June the 7th 2015. As I approach my 60th birthday I've started reading stuff about growing old. If you're not careful It's easy to lose heart. Last week, week, I read a book called The Art of Aging, A Doctor's Prescription for Well-Being. It's by Sherwin Newland, a clinical professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. There's a very thin line, observes Newland, between denial and despair, between pretending nothing has changed and doing nothing at all. There's also a big difference between living long and living well. Beyond the standard advice about diet, exercise, genetics, intellectual stimulation, and social connection, Newland explores the intangibles of our attitudes, dispositions, and religious faith. It's not just about eating granola, he says, cultivating equanimity over entitlement, contentment over complaining. Or determination over discouragement. These are only three examples of the attitudes we can choose when it comes to aging. Aging brings both gains and losses. Cultivating the wisdom to separate fact and fantasy is huge, as is learning to live with uncertainty and adversity. One of the biggest lessons of aging, says Newland, is that choice exists for each one of us. Aging is not a disease. It's a natural condition of every life. And if it's handled wisely, there really is more sugar at the bottom of the cup. Newland writes about living well as you get old. Atul Gwande has written a book A bestseller about dying well. It's called Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End. Gawande argues that instead of acknowledging the natural order of things, we've been seduced by the prevailing fantasy that we are ageless. Instead of acknowledging the limits of medical treatment, we've turned mortality into an almost purely medical experience which in turn has led to denial, dishonesty, arrogance, and, for the elderly and the dying, horrible social isolation. This reduction of mortality to medicine, says Gawande, harms instead of heals. Acknowledging your mortality is a tremendous gift. It reorders your desires. It narrows your focus and gives you a new perspective that's rooted in reality, instead of futile medical fantasies. Medical interventions are only justified, says Skawande, if they serve the larger aims of a person's life. When we forget that, the suffering we inflict can be barbaric, he says. But when we remember it, the good doctors can do is breathtaking. Newland and Gawande could have appealed to St. Paul. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that our bodies are wasting away, and that consequently we groan and are burdened. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul mentions the body seven times. He uses unflattering metaphors to describe the body. It's like a flimsy tent a clay jar, a nakedness when we are exposed as unclothed. Life in the body, says Paul, is a time of troubles when we are away from the Lord. Paul is brutally realistic about life in the body. He yanks us out of fantasy and into reality, from denial into candor. He would move us from despair to wisdom in order to live well today. But make no mistake, for Paul, life in the body is hard. Growing old isn't for sissies. While in the body, says Paul, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. In the language of the 1995 crime movie, we are dead men walking. Various writers describe this experience in similar ways. The Benedictine nun Joan Chittister calls it a spirituality of struggle. The Orthodox theologian John Krasavkis calls it a spirituality of imperfection. The Presbyterian pastor, Don McCulloch, has written about the consolations of imperfections. And thank God for our Lutheran friends who contrast a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. Sometimes we experience God through his mighty acts of power, But Luther famously reminded us that God's ultimate act of redemption and revelation was through suffering on a cross. The theology of the cross thus affirms that we often experience God's power in our human weakness. In The Lord of the Rings, the elves of Lothorian admit that they are losing their forest lands. But they battle on. Characterizing their struggle as fighting the long defeat in the letter in the Book of Letters of Tolkien, Tolkien describes our human struggle in identical language. He says, "Actually, I am a Christian and indeed a Roman Catholic, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some examples or glimpses of final victory. Some people think that this is too pessimistic or defeatist. Flannery O'Connor had the right response to this criticism. To those who complained about her grotesque and deeply flawed characters, she insisted that, quote, there is nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. Paul is a realist, not a sentimentalist, and his realism is liberating and refreshing. Paul begins and ends his reflections on wasting away in the body with the identical words We do not lose heart Second Corinthians four one and four sixteen. That counsel of encouragement is necessary because the temptation to despair is real. In the end, Paul is an optimist. He writes, Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're now nine weeks after Easter, and yet the epistle this week is still reminding us of resurrection. Paul writes, We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. The hope of the resurrection, not exercise or a better diet, is Paul's counsel about our many burdens of life in the body. For books this week, I review a title by Patrick Modiano. The title, Dora Bruder. This book was originally published in Paris in 1997, and more recently by the University of California Press in 1999, and then again in 2015. Dora Bruder is 119 pages. In December of 1988, the French novelist Patrick Modiano happened to read a missing person notice in a 1941 issue of the French newspaper Paris Soir. A 15-year-old girl named Dora Bruder had run away from her convent boarding school, where her parents had placed her during the Nazi occupation. Dora's parents had placed the ad. This led Modiano on a ten-year search to learn everything he could about Dora Bruder, which wasn't much. And his search for Dora leads to personal meditations on his own family history. Dora Bruder is a hybrid book. Part biography, part memoir, and part historical reconstruction that's based upon assumptions, conjectures, and imaginative leaps. The Paris of today has changed. Street addresses that no longer correspond to any building. Suburbs that have reconfigured the city of Mariano's youth. Hotels and schools that no longer exist. He finds a few photographs, discovers the odd newspaper clipping, locates historical documents like police registers, And here's the fuzzy memories of a few people who lived at the same time as Dora. He also finds Dora listed on a list of Jews deported from Paris to Auschwitz in September 1942. Dora commands our interest precisely because of her ordinariness. A single person among six million deaths she came from the sort of Jewish family who leave few traces, virtually anonymous, inseparable, writes Modiano, from those Paris streets, those suburban landscapes where, by chance, I discovered that they had lived. Often what I know about them amounts to no more than a simple address, and such topographical precision contrasts with what we shall never know about their life this blank this mute block of the unknown. Moriano evokes the dark days of the occupation, the curfews, internments, roundups, ghettos, force registration, yellow stars and shaved heads. Why did Dora run away from the safety of her school that was hiding her, only to end up in Auschwitz a few months later? Modiano links the past and the present, his own family's history, with that of Dora's. When Modiano won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2014, the citation was for, quote, "...the art of memory with which he has evoked the most ungraspable human destinies and uncovered the life world of the Nazi occupation." This slender volume, now translated into 20 languages, is a good example of the reason for that accolade. Once again, the author, Patrick Modiano, and the title of the book, Dora Bruder. For film this week, I review a movie called Far From the Matting Crowd, two thousand and 15. Director Thomas Vinterberg has turned Thomas Hardy's novel of the same title into a film set in 1870 Victorian England with all its mannered mores of class. The main character Bathsheba Everdeen played by Carey Mulligan has inherited her uncle's vast but dilapidated farm and resolves to restore its ruins all by herself. Indeed, she's a sort of proto-feminist with a fiercely independent streak. She works in parties with the farmhands, boasts that she's never been kissed, and insists that she doesn't need a husband. But in this romantic drama, she must choose between three different suitors a downscale and rock-solid sheep farmer, Gabriel Oak, her older and mega-wealthy bachelor neighbor, William Boldwood, and a dashing but dissolute soldier named Frank Troy. Falling in love serially three times makes Bathsheba's life very complicated. There's no linear plot here, nor could there be. The setting of the film, on rural English farms 200 miles from London, makes for a marvelous period movie. Once again, far from the matting crowd. For poetry this week, we go back to the 4th century, and Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nazianzus lived from 329 to 390. This poem is called An Evening Hymn. O word of truth, in devious paths my wayward feet have trod. I have not kept the day serene I gave at morn to God. And now tis night, and night within. O God, the light hath fled. I have not kept the vow I made when morn its glories shed. For clouds of gloom from netherworld obscured my upward way. O Christ the light, thy light bestow, in turn my night to day. Gregory Nazianzus By the way, this poem is taken from a book called Before the Door of God, an anthology of devotional poetry. It's reviewed at journeywithjesus.net. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 7th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. (coughs)